Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Can you believe that Major League Baseball was so afraid of the amount of hype the NHL was going to get this week with the Hockey Hall of Fame announcements and the draft lottery that it decided to return to play just to keep the NHL off the front pages of all American newspapers? They're so insecure. They really are. They, they, they saw that week that we had when Gary Bettman was on every show talking about the 2014 tournament and baseball, baseball heard the footsteps, baby. Baseball said, uh oh, hockey's coming. We got to make sure that we get our stuff. We have to get our spots in before hockey does this week. Not appreciated. I've got to, I've got to say baseball has either been amazing or idiotic in the way they've handled this publicity. Amazing in the sense that they have convinced every reporter to report that this week is the most critical in baseball's <laughs> return for the last three and a half months. Idiotic because we've just been talking about how idiotic their owners are and the fact they're in this mess. I worked with Jeff Passan at Yahoo for the better part of like eight years, and I've probably seen him more this week on television than I saw him in eight years at Yahoo. I don't know how that happens, but there it is. Uh, coming up on the show today... Lots of hockey talk, including our own return to play stuff, uh, including the Hockey Hall of Fame announcements, including Matt Dumba of the Minnesota Wild and the Hockey Diversity Alliance talking about some really important issues, including a charity effort that he's just started. And Chris Dorburn, who is just retired. He used to be with the Blues and the Jets. And we talk about many cool things and, and, and some really interesting stuff insofar as how the Blues helped out him and his family while playing. Uh, all that and more on ESPN and Ice. But this wait, week. I can't believe what? you didn't mention that Chris Thorburn played for the Atlanta Thrashers. If you're an Atlanta Thrashers fan, you're going to get some content. Yeah, we get constantly harangued by people saying, where's that Thrashers content? Well, to the person who said that once, here you go. <laughs> All that and more on this edition of ESPN and Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? <laughs> From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm uh, Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. Well, Emily, uh, the Hall of Fame has announced its latest class, 2020. Jury's still out if we're going to have an induction ceremony, but it is a, a big old class of six members. We've got ourselves a, uh, a Marion Hosa, a Jerome McGinley. We got ourselves a uh, Doug Wilson, a Kevin Lowe, a Kenny Holland in the builders category, and a Kim St. Pierre in the women's category. Your your initial thoughts on the Hockey Hall of Fame class announced moments ago before we did this. Okay. Two things. One, Kim St. Pierre deserves to be in. She is an incredible goaltender, and I want to take nothing away from her. It's very cool. She is the first women's goaltender in the hall. But it is strange to me in these mighty, mighty powers that be that vote on these things that you have two spots for women, but somehow they can never fill both of them. They just have <laughs> to snub somebody. And I do feel that this year it was Jennifer Botterill who deserved it, was the face of Team Canada for so many years, achieved so much international success and success in the CWHL. And I have no doubt in my mind, inevitably she'll get in. This is me just critiquing the way that it's voted in, um, that we just somehow weigh men so much differently than women, and we don't even let women fill the spots that they have earned. Yeah, and uh, Julie Chu... Um, Jennifer Botterill, 
And there's there's more than a few, and and I would agree. It's it's kind of nonsensical that, especially with all the time they need to make up for <laughs> previous snubs, you'd figure Correct. they would be doing a lot more work there. Um, I and also we should point out first woman in uh, Canadian collegiate sports history uh, to win a men's regular season game while with McGill in 2003 as yeah. well. Extraordinarily deserved, and congrats to Kim. Um, but look, Aginla was a stone-cold lock, one of the best players in recent memory, awesome ambassador for the game, an incredible amount of uh, of, of success both uh, in the NHL and from a team perspective internationally. Of course, everybody remembers him having the golden assist to win the te- uh, 2010 uh, Vancouver Games for Canada. Uh, so he pretty was pretty much in. makes up for all of Canada for him not winning a Stanley Cup. It certainly does. It certainly does. But here's the thing: like I'm getting blowback from Chicago Blackhawks fanboys on Marion Hosa being a first ballot guy. He's a Hall of Famer, like without question, no doubt. He's a Hall of Famer. But like, it's okay to question whether he's a first ballot guy. The first ballot Hall of Famers that have come down the pike, take a look at them. They are super megastars. You know, the the lowest bar set was Marty San Louis in recent years, and that's still a guy that won a couple scoring titles and a Hart Trophy. Marion Hulsa didn't have a single award to his name throughout his entire career. Like, his numbers are great. We all agree that he's one of the best defensive wingers of his era. Totally should be a Hall of Famer, but just going by the history of the selection committee... Being on the first ballot kind of meant something. So it was a bit of a surprise to see him on the first ballot. Doesn't mean he doesn't deserve to be in. Of course he deserves to be in. But I, I, I for people being like, no, you dummy, of course he's first ballot. Okay. Point, point to the other guy that you can say had the lack of era-specific accolades that Marion Hosa had that got in on the first ballot. No vision of individual awards. At no point... Did anyone point to Marion Host and say he was one of the top, you know, three guys at his position during any any run that he had? I don't know. First ballot's a bit much. Uh, thrilled about Doug Wilson. I've been campaigning for Doug Wilson for years. Uh, a very deserved guy. One of those guys that had a stellar career back in the 1980s, won Norris Trophy, but simply didn't get the renown that he should have gotten because he was in the same era as Ray Bork and Paul Coffey and Rod Langway. So he, 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 good, good, good job out of them putting him in uh, and quieting down the people in the media like me that have been crying about it for the last, like, 10 years. For me, the biggest disappointment besides the women aspect is Alexander McGinley. And I don't mm. know when they're going to put this guy in, if they're going to be putting this guy in, what the deal is there. He's in the Triple Gold Club. He had a 16-season NHL career where he averaged more than a point per game. He won the Lady Bing, so he's got an individual trophy. He's done everything you could possibly do on the international stage. But most important to me was that he was the first Russian-born player who was named an NHL team captain. And if you consider that now there's eight European-born captains... He really set that precedent. He was a pioneer in a way that, you know, overcame xenophobia and a lot of longstanding cultural norms. And the fact that he has been overlooked again and again, um, it shows a little bit about the voting process where they, I think, um, have outsized uh, value on what you do in your NHL career and just doesn't yeah. quite look at the bigger picture. Right. And I'll get back to 
Low and, and Holland in a second, but you're right about McGilney. Like McGilney, Brendan Moore was another. Alfredson's still waiting. Ronick's still waiting. Gonchar, Barrasso, Curtis Joseph, just a few that are still out there in the ether. But on McGilney in particular, I'm starting to get like as angry as I did when they snubbed Pat Burns a bunch of times before they inducted <laughs> him, inducted him posthumously. Like one of the things about the Hockey Hall of Fame that I love is when you can walk into the Hockey Hall of Fame and point to a plaque and tell your kid or whomever you're with, if they're not familiar with the player, this is why this player is important. And not only does Alexander McGillney fulfill the obligation of fame because he was one of the most electrifying players of his generation, but you can also tell the story of hockey by simply pointing at the plaque and saying, here's who this guy was. And it is baffling to me that this guy's not in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely baffling. Um, Kevin Lowe's a weird one. I'm kind of torn on it because, like, on the one hand, it's like taking the 80th guy from the Cincinnati Reds in the 1970s for the Baseball <laughs> Hall of Fame. Like, there's really? so many Oilers that are in the Hall of Fame right now for for in the NHL or the, in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Maybe you don't need another one. But on a the really other hand, uh, choice to pick out yeah. the Reds there, liked it. <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, he's like the kind of player I'm always complaining about that doesn't get into the Hall of Fame. The sort of backbone defensive defenseman mm-hmm. guy um, doesn't have the craziest offensive stats like other players from his era, but is the glue backbone type player that was in- integral in five championships of the Oilers and the '94 Rangers Stanley Cup. Like, um, so torn. Like, I-, I feel it's overkill. Maybe you don't need the 90th guy from the Oilers dynasty to get in, but I also think that it's representative of the type of guy I wish got in more. So. I give it a, hmm, I don't know if it's good or bad, because I'm torn as to whether or not it, it is good or bad, but congrats to the guy anyway. I do find it yeah. interesting, I do find it interesting, Emily, by the way, that um, uh, Kevin Lowe does get into the Hall of Fame with Brian Burke on the selection committee. Brian Burke famously uh, wanted to fight Lowe in a barn at one point during a, uh, a, a very tense time in their relationship as general managers. To be fair, who did Brian Burke not want to fight in a barn at some point in his career? <laughs> right. I think he might have wanted to fight you and me at some point. Who's to say? Uh, you brought up a great point about defensemen, though. I do feel like it's really difficult criteria for defensemen. There's a reason. They just don't cast a very wide net, and that's a reason that Doug Wilson slipped through the uh, cracks for so many years, even though he did win a Norris Trophy. So I like the Kevin Lowe edition in that sense. I just want to spin this forward because he did that great piece this week on the future Hall of Famer on all 31 teams. Um, when you put that out on Twitter, what was the biggest debate? We're going to talk about the Sedins later, but what did people get <laughs> the most angry at wish for? It's it's the snubs that I don't include because I didn't include everybody. A lot of people asking where Steve Larmer from the Blackhawks is. A lot of people asking where Pierre Turgeon, who uh, you know had great times with the Islanders and Sabres is. I mean, he's sort of in that classic Hall of Very Good um, I did update the story when a, a Red Wings fan pointed out I didn't include Chris Osgood. That's one of my favorite Hall of Fame debates, a guy that has sterling numbers of wins and impeccable postseason numbers, but maybe doesn't rise to the level of elite goaltender. Um, so those were them, but you mentioned the Sedins. We, we talk, we, we're going to talk about them a little bit later as well, but they're up next year. Um, you know, we're all waiting for Yaga to retire. Then maybe he gets to be the, the year after he retires kind of guy instead of having to wait three years. We'll see where it all goes, but uh, but yeah, the, the, the snubs are interesting this year. One last thing uh, before we get to our first guest. Look, uh, Ken Holland, man, um, how to put this. 
I respect the fact that he facilitated a dynasty type situation in Detroit. They were in the playoffs every season. They won a bunch of cups under him, both as an assistant GM as a GM. I respect that he, behind the scenes, was a very progressive force in the NHL. One of the reasons we have the three-on-three overtime is because of Kenny Holland. How exciting is that? Because he hates the shootout as much as I do. I find it weird that after all the rigmarole about David Poyle becoming the winningest general manager in the history of the National Hockey League. That he's not in the Hall of Fame, but Ken Holland is. Like, I mean, isn't that, I mean, didn't we make a big deal out of David Poyle being the winningest general manager in the history of the National Hockey League and he's still on the outside looking in, but one of his contemporaries gets in because he lucked into a team that already had Steve Eiserman and Sergei Fedorov and Nick Lidstrom? Honestly, when David Poyle goes in, I hope that one of the criteria they bring up is, this is a man that never gave out a no-movement clause. Let's give him some praise. <laughs> if, that's, if that's not, you know, a reason to put a guy into the Hall of Fame, I don't know what it is. All right, let's talk to uh, Matt Dumba. And now joining us on the line is Minnesota Wild defenseman Matt Dumba, and he's among the founders, and I believe on the executive committee, of the Hockey Diversity Alliance, which was just formed recently. And Matt, first, thanks so much for joining us. And I'd love to know, you know, you guys have said this is something that has been in conversation and works for a while now um, among several high-profile minority NHL players. Like, how did this come about? Like, what is it, a text thread? Is it phone calls? Obviously, everyone loves Zoom now. Like, how did you guys finally form until it became um, a thing? Well, originally it was just kind of a text thread and it was just guys just being added into the conversation and leaving the conversation. We had a, we had a bunch of dudes uh, talking and then I think Akeem and Evander um, took it into their own hands and uh, wanted to co-lead this together and kind of came up with seven guys that they thought um, had really strong opinions and voices guys who are uh, you know, willing to stand up and come together. And then we then we started getting on some Zoom calls. And, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess uh, the rest is, uh, the rest is history. And we're just, we're just trying to, uh, we're just trying to get as many guys involved because we know that there's strength in numbers. But at the same time, at the start, it's hard when you got so many dudes um, and so many different opinions and, in a text thread or on a Zoom call. So just having it seven just to start was good, just so we could all be on the same page. And that's how we that's how we look to approach it um, from here on out. Whoever we add to, uh, to the alliance is just having everyone on the same page and having that unity, um, you know, so we're, a, so we're a strong group and we can uh, go about making our changes, uh, you know, together. And, uh, with uh, with the partners, uh, the partnerships that we have. When we saw the list of the guys in this group, it's so many high-profile players, but one guy that wasn't in there is P.K. Subban. And forgive me if this is ignorant or, or there's something behind it. I'm just curious, um, why has he not been involved and, and do you hope to include him in the future? Yeah, we definitely hope to uh, include P.K. Um, in the future. Uh, definitely trying to get as many minority players uh, involved. Um, you know, uh, uh, PK is also a, a pretty busy dude. Um, he's got his own stuff going <laughs> on. Uh, we've been in talks with him too, so he knows what's going on. He, he supports us. 
Um, you know, but we, we've been on Zoom calls. It's crazy every day, you know, two two hours, hour and a half here. Um, so it's been really time-consuming, and, and that's just a thing initially that, you know, we're kind of walking by faith right now, and um, none of us have ever been through this before. So there's a lot of stuff we have to talk about, and, and it is a big commitment. So I can understand why there's some guys who uh, are a little more reserved or, you know, haven't taken that leap with us yet, but um, we're still encouraging them all to do so and I, I think in the future once we uh figure out where this ship is going um exactly more guys are gonna get on board and um that's what we're hoping you know we hope you know we went from seven now we're at now we're at nine and we hope to get to 10 and then 20 50 100 a thousand and that's where we think we're going to make the real differences when we do have all those voices and uh, we are just one collective working towards the common goal. That's uh, that's eradicating racism from our game. Yeah, and to that end, man, the, the stuff you've I've read from you in the last couple of weeks really struck a chord because there's so much that a lot of us on the outside looking in don't understand. Like, for example, when you were talking the other day to the Star Tribune about the conversations that white parents don't have to have with their kids that parents of players with color have to have and how those are the types of things you want to eliminate, that you want to eliminate this idea that somebody who has a passion for hockey has to have that passion tempered with concerns about whether the sport will accept them. And I thought that's that's exactly the the, the key to this whole thing. And, And I was wondering, you know, in the smallest of steps, what are some of the things that you focus on to try to eliminate those types of conversations and the, the, the necessity for them? Um, yeah, so that's the thing. Like, I hope I can look back now, years from now, and uh, or kids look back, kids of color, uh, minority players can look back and say, "Hey, like these guys, it's only the stories of what these guys went through. You know, they don't actually have to face that those challenges uh, that a lot of us had to face to get where we are." Uh, I've just seen the game turn away so many, so many kids. Um, you know who who could have been great players. We, I guess we we don't know, um, but it's just kind of a resentment for the game they built because they had to be a victim. Um, they're a victim of racism every, almost every time they stepped on the ice. Um, so, you know, that really hurts me. Um, and then I think from the HCA's um, standpoint is, you know, we're looking to create policies and stuff at the grassroots level that, that eliminate this, that there are penalties for this and kids, and it's not all, it's not also just uh, penalizing the kids because some of them just don't know better at that time. Like you, right. you learn this or you pick it up from somewhere, these, this racism or this hate. Um, and I think little kids don't understand, understand the context of it sometimes. So it's also teaching. I think that that's one thing you, you want to teach the kids. You're not, you know, you, you can't crucify uh, a 12-year-old either for maybe growing up in a family that, um, you know, doesn't have, isn't that open-minded or, you know, doesn't have that tolerance. Um, so it, it, there's a lot that goes into it, but, uh, you know, I think I think we have the power to do that and, and make some real change in our game as well. 
The catalyst for so much of this that we've seen in the last month, including the outpouring of comments from over 110 NHL players, was obviously the killing of George Floyd, uh, the protest that we saw over police brutality. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you was about that relationship between law enforcement and the NHL. Um, it, it's close, uh, a close relationship. A lot of teams have law enforcement appreciation nights and cops at every game where they're honoring them and stuff like that. It's a strong bond. And, and I was wondering if anything in that relationship, in your opinion, has to change or how the Hockey Diversity Alliance sees ways to maybe leverage those relationships to try to better things for the community? Um, I think that relationship is still going to be important. Um, yet, um, I know I, I've, I've read a lot about uh, you know, defunding uh, the police uh, and yeah, defunding. I think a lot of people take that the wrong way when they hear that word. Um, I I understand it, and I and I and I actually I actually like it uh, just because of it links back to you know social work and preventative stuff beforehand, building up building up the people in our community and helping them out before before it gets to a point uh, where crime or, you know, some, some bad happens. So is, I, I think people get it, you know, you can get it twisted too. And, and say, you know, all cops are bad. That's not the truth here. I know, I know a lot of good cops, but there are some, there are some rotten apples in, in the mix that, you know, give a bad name for them right now. And I think that needs to be addressed. So, starting from the ground up, um, I think is the route that, um, you know, a lot of these forces are going to have to take. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, you know, I I do believe that there is a, there is a way that um, the HTA, um, you know, can incorporate that. I I don't know if it's um, a thing initially right off the hop that, you know, we're, we're, putting a lot of focus into. Uh, we got a lot of things on the go. But, um, you know, I know I, you mentioned PK before, and I know he's uh, got an initiative uh, called Blue Line Buddies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I support that, and I support PK. He's been, uh, he's been nothing but good to me and my family um, during my career. So um, there are stuff like that that is, uh, that is coming up and opportunities for NHL and HTA uh, to make a difference in the community like that and kind of rebuild that bridge that kind of has been broken down um, because of the systematic racism and injustice that, uh, you know, people in the, people in the U S in our society have, have faced for so long. So um, I think we'll, we will, we will be a part of that uh, rebuilding, uh, rebuilding process. Matt, I understand that you are in Calgary at home right now during the coronavirus pause, but the epicenter of all this conversation is in Minneapolis and St. Paul and the community that you play um, and because of the killing of George Floyd. I was just curious what it's been like to watch all of this unfold from afar. And if you could tell us a little bit about this fundraiser you've launched, um, which is going to help the Lake Street Council and rebuild downtown and support nonprofits and I believe small businesses as well. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it's been tough, you know, um, being here, being away from it. Um, 
I just, you know, I think that's one of the big things that, you know, sparked an initiative that me and my little brother came up with. Um, and also with JT Brown, you know, we were, we were kind of living vicariously uh, through JT and what he was doing in the community, uh, helping out, giving out groceries, uh, you know, been at peaceful protests. Um, so being able to see that and see some other friends um, doing some awesome work in, in Minnesota, you know, handing out water at some of the protests and some of the marches, um, you know, and, and like, what can I do being, you know, the thousand, thousand miles away? And, uh, and it just started off with, you know, some of just basic talks and my brother wanted to make a pair of shoes. We want to raffle them off, and then the website, and then the video, and it kind of all just snowballed. Um, and yeah, it's it's been great so far. I think in the first five days, we're at uh, fifty five thousand dollars, and uh, looking to get to that uh, hunting market. That's awesome. Well, Matt, last one for me. Um, I'm curious. I think a lot of hockey fans right now are wondering. What can I do? How can I support this movement, this cause? How can I be more inclusive in the sport? How can I make the sport better? What's your answer to those fans asking those questions? Um, I guess it's asking for a little bit of patience from us in the HGA. I know we're uh, we're coming out with a bunch of stuff, and, and you know we're getting pulled every which way of you know friends and family, you know, wanted to be a part of it. And, and that's our goal, like, to get as many people involved as we can and um, really make this inclusive and, you know, try to grow our game from a diversity standpoint, from, you know, equality. Uh, you know, just make this. Because we do believe that it's the greatest game in the world. But, you know, there's there's something a little rotten at the core of it, which is, uh, which is tough. And if we can get it get through to that and, and eliminate that, um, I truly believe, you know, we'll have, we'll have so much more hockey fans and be able to reach so much, uh, so many more demographics of people who, you know, maybe, maybe aren't your typical, uh, hockey fans. And that's, and that's, and that's really exciting for me, you know, and my, my two favorite players I watched growing up were Paul Correa and Jerome McGinley. Mm. And, you know, that, that gave me, that gave me hope and it inspired me to uh, be the be the best uh, hockey player I could be, and also you know the best best uh, person I could be. Seeing Team Jerome do all the stuff in the community he did uh, when I was younger um, was really cool. So I, I hope to follow in some of those guys' footsteps and um, also also kind of pave the way for for the next guys coming through. And um, yeah, there's 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 going to be a lot. I, I honestly I could talk all day about it. Uh, but it's just it, it's awesome you, you get inspired you talk to talk, bouncing ideas off each other um, I think it's going to be really cool where the sport goes in the next 10-20 uh, years and uh, just just the different people we can we can bring into it so I guess just uh, stay tuned yeah oh, well man I hope I hope you don't stop talking I hope everybody that's been addressing this in the last month doesn't stop talking either because it's a vital issue for the growth of the sport and to make hockey the sport we all know it could be here in the States, especially. But we can't let you go without talking about the fact you're on a playoff team, dude. You're playing on. You're in a 24-team tournament. Uh, so I guess the last question, we're all on pins and needles waiting to see how this thing is going to play out. Hub cities, 
return to play, you know, all this stuff, the agreements the NHLPA and the NHL are working on. Um, I had a player tell me over the weekend it's like 50-50 on whether you guys are going to sign off on coming back. Where's your head at right now? What do you think about coming back, and, and where do you think this whole thing is headed in the next uh, week or so? Mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I, I, fig- I figured I hit you with an easy question to say goodbye, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, to be honest, I guess I guess we're all still just waiting on uh, to find out what's what's going on, really. Um, these COVID cases uh, popping up doesn't really. Uh, I don't. I don't think it makes guys feel good about. Uh, the situation is flying all over the states and stuff, but um, at the same time, they're, you know they're they're doing their due diligence, and if they can make it happen, they can. And if not, I guess that's what it is. But I don't know. It's, just, it's so weird, you know. None of us have been through any of this, and we've kind of just all been playing the same game for the last couple months now, just just a waiting game and try to stay in shape without you know peaking too early or. I, it's it's gonna be crazy, but I, I'm sh- I I think they're gonna make it happen. Yeah. But uh, I guess we'll see. There's, uh, I think there's gonna there's still a couple more bumps in the road, and, yeah. and maybe it gets pushed back a little. But I I still think it'll happen. For sure, Matt, you're a good man. You're doing great work. We'll continue to put the spotlight on what you guys are doing in the alliance. And, and thanks for creating it and and continued success, man. You're you're making a difference out there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care, Matt. Thanks so much, Matt. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, our thanks to Matt Dumba for joining us about a great many things. Uh, Moving on to the thing we were just talking to him about, though, the latest in the NHL and COVID-19, the return-to-play protocols, all that fun stuff. This was was, uh, Bachelor Rose Week for uh, the Hubs. In the sense that we saw Columbus did not get a rose, Pittsburgh did not get a rose, uh, Minneapolis did not get a rose. Uh, who else was out this week? In true ABC The Bachelor for, uh, fashion, they did it in a two-night event. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. the first two on Monday, wait a night. The next two on Tuesday, yeah, um, yeah Dallas, Mini, Dallas, Pittsburgh, right. uh, and Columbus all did not get a rose, which leaves us with the presumed front runner, Las Vegas. The three Canadian cities, Vancouver, Edmonton, and Toronto, as well as those sneaky cars, Chicago and Los Angeles, which I'll put it to you this way, Greg. Like, we've been hearing Vegas and Vancouver the entire time. Today on Wednesday, Elliot Friedman reports there's been a snag with something with Vancouver, maybe the Canadian cities. Would you not be shocked if either Chicago or LA, LA gets it? Because I wouldn't. Um, I'm increasingly shocked if it's LA. <laughs> like, every time I look, the numbers in LA are atrocious. And I know the thing with L.A. is that you – I mean, if you're looking at this thing like a true like Olympic village, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you could bubble up L.A. Live pretty easily. And yes. that is your, your spot. You've got restaurants in there. You've got the hotel. You walk across the you got quad. a bowling alley. Yeah, you're at the, you're at the arena. I mean, it is, it is bu- bubble ready if you're, if you're the NHL. And obviously the players are pretty cool with it. And, you know – Hopping on a bus and going to uh, the uh, Kings practice facility or hopping on a bus and going to the Ducks practice facility, it's not the worst thing in the world. They've got plenty of ice there. I could see logistically why it makes sense. 
if the modus operandi of the NHL, like they've said to both of us, is we want the most secure and safe bubble, maybe you can make the argument the bubble could be secure, but the city sure is sure isn't. I mean, like the the COVID cases in LA are spiking, so it's kind of confusing as to whether or not they see a difference between the security of the bubble and what's happening outside the bubble because outside the bubble LA would not be in my top three right now um now if you're talking about the best in-game experience and if you're looking at arena amenities and bubble in that sense you can't not go with Edmonton they're the best of this bunch in the sense that they have the most high-tech state-of-the-art arena Mm-hmm. Best visiting locker rooms as voted by players, multiple visiting locker rooms, multiple home locker rooms. The issue is players get a say and we don't know if they want to go to Edmonton. Yeah. And, and on top of that, I mean, the other thing, too, the, the, the two things that we've heard consistently from the league are got to have a state, a, a, an arena that can handle this. Got to have other sheets of ice around where teams can practice when they're not playing these games throughout the day. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think Edmonton has that. The other thing that they need to have, though, that they don't necessarily have is the high-end hotel capacity to yes. have 12 teams staying there at the same time to play these games. And that's where Vancouver has it. That's where L.A. has it. Las Vegas is basically that. I mean, you could put those teams in 100 different places. Um, so that was always kind of the knock on Edmonton's bid, on top of the fact that, again, like... I know I have a complicated relationship with the people of Edmonton. I'm sorry that I have standards for the Hart Trophy that make you angry. But here's the thing. You have to entice these guys to want to come back and play this summer during a global pandemic. They love to play in Vancouver. They love to play in Las Vegas. They love to play in Los Angeles. There's a reason why free agents don't sign in Edmonton. I'm sorry. Like We've talked about this for 20 years. They don't go to Edmonton. One guy's gone to Edmonton. It was Lucic because they overpaid him. And they said, maybe you get to play with Connor. That's it. And there's a reason for it. <laughs> because Edmonton is not as attractive as Vancouver. It's not as attractive as LA. It certainly isn't Las Vegas. It's not Toronto. I completely understand why Edmonton is on this list. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, everything's trending in the right direction. They have a state-of-the-art arena, yada, yada, yada. But if you're, as we said recently, if you're an NHL player and you're looking down to Florida... You're saying the NBA gets to spend two and a half months at Disney World? And we're being sent to Edmonton? I mean, come on. Not to disparage. Beautiful city. But but that was disparaging. There are golf courses nearby. It's only a you know four-hour drive to Banff if you want to make that drive on your off day. And the one (laughs) thing Edmonton has said um, is that, yes, we understand we don't have the luxury hotel capacity, but in that one nice luxury hotel, and I'm blanking on the name right now, um, if you had of your 50 team traveling party, um, 50 member traveling party, I believe it's like 40 guys. We could fit everybody of the 12 teams in, which means that the other 20 are stuck at like, you know, the Fairfield Inn or wherever. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that's um, but, great. I, th- I think Edmonton wins the bid with it's only four hours to Banff. <laughs> Edmonton, only four hours to Banff. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about what we are waiting on from the health and safety protocols, Greg, because, yes, the Hub Cities has gotten an outsized amount of attention and people are excited, perhaps because of this Bachelor Rose-like reveal um, of who is in contender and who's out. But what really matters to the players and the league right now is what it looks like inside that bubble with testing capacities. And one thing I reported last week is what is this going to look like for coaches? Mm-hmm. Um 
we are in a situation where the NBA put out their health and safety protocols and have these lengthy, uh, you know, bits in language that can identify coaches or staff members that are, quote unquote, high risk for complications and remove them from the team environment. Say you can't be on the sidelines and things like that. So um, I asked the NHL Coaches Association where they fell in this. Uh, they have been talking to the league and they have been assured that nobody is going to be banned from being around the team because of their Mm. age or health. It is Mm. going to be up to the individual coach. There's 12 active members on NHL coaching staff that are 60 or over by the end of the month. And if those guys or anyone else doesn't be around the team, doesn't want to be, the league says they'll help accommodate them and make sure their job is safe. Now, I do feel like that news came out and everyone's like, oh my God, the word assurance, like talk about um, tone deaf. How, how are they assuring that you can go and be around and be infected? But I do think this is really about labor law and, and the NHL is worried about age discrimination or something like mm-hmm. that and a suit mm-hmm. that could potentially come out of it. What do you think? Yeah, that's, it's a very interesting question. And, and I think it not only speaks to the coaches because of the age of these guys, but also the ages of some executives and the ages of some people that work, you know, ice crews and things like that. It's, it's a fascinating question. I think a lot of us are wondering what exactly is going to happen if there are multitudes of people that don't want to participate in this. You're seeing it in the NBA right now with players that are opting out. You're seeing it with teams saying they don't want certain guys to play. Um, you know, we've been told by the NHL there's no penalties for any of these guys that don't want to come back and play during or, or coach during a, a global pandemic. The only thing that you could probably say is that they won't get a share of any playoff bonus money if there is any. Um, but what kind of pressure is it on a coach, right? Like if you're in your 60s, and you're a little bit nervous about all this, like, is it possible to beg out? Is it possible to be like, I'm not doing this? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Especially for a coach. Like, a player has a contract. You don't fire the players. Coaches get fired all the time. So the question then becomes, if you decide not to do this, what are the unofficial repercussions for it? And do you think there are any? That's what the coaches have been assured from the NHL, that they'll make sure there's not. I do believe teams will be concerned about the optics, though, if they are making a choice to fire a guy. Um, something I find interesting, though, with the players opting out, and especially in the NBA, and we're starting to get some names, a lot of guys who are choosing not to play, um, some of the guys, I won't say a lot of them, some of them are because of contract situations. Mm-hmm. They're a free agent this summer, and they don't want to risk it for playing in however many potentially meaningless games um, and ruining it. I'm curious if that's going to carry over to the NHL, if only because I do think we're going to be in a much different situation with contracts being handed out in the future and us potentially seeing a stagnant, if not eventually decreased salary cap. What say you? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, we already saw the Roman Polak situation with Dallas. I mean, that was a specific thing where he decides to peace out, go play in the Czech Republic next year. And, uh, and not even worry about any of this stuff. Um, but it does come down to an interesting point about unrestricted free agents, which is that essentially, look, you could, you could just heal up for nine months, right? Before next season, which in theory is going to happen. Uh, or you can come back and, and try to succeed and, and win a cup. Uh, maybe put yourself on display, put the spotlight on you. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're someone who's not going to necessarily be with the team next year, where's your head at right now? Insofar as all of this stuff, your family, everything else, I, I think it's a good question. Um, we talked about this with, with Dumba real quick. The the players seem like they're 50-50 on return to play. I think a lot of them are spooked by the news that's come out in the last week or so. 
um, with other sports, with what's happened in, with the Lightning, who closed their facility then reopened it, um, with what's happened to some you know players around the, the NHL and athletes in other sports. I don't know where their heads are at right now. I mean, I do think that there's a lot we don't know insofar as what the CBA stuff is going on and how much mm-hmm. that's playing into any ultimate decision that they make. Um, but it, look, news ain't good. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not, it, it was a little, little bit more sunshine in the world uh, two weeks ago, maybe when it came to this return to the play stuff. But now as we get closer to a July 10th deadline, which as Matt Dumba mentioned could potentially get shifted, uh, for, for training camps to start, um, you start to wonder where their heads are at. Where do you think their heads are at? I think they're confused. I think they need more information before they can actually decide. And that's the issue mm-hmm. is that they're mm-hmm. working out this information right now. Um, but you're right. I, to mention the CBA stuff, think of the information overload these NHLPA guys are getting of what the bubble is going to look like, what their financial security could look like in the next year or two years, five years from now, depending on how long they extend the CBA. They're trying to sneak it in there and doing it July 9th or earlier so they can, you know, do one great announcement and maybe steal that spotlight from that, you know, annoying, nagging baseball commissioner or whatever baseball. he wants yeah. to call himself. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. Yeah. That's a good question. I, I I don't know either. I I do think though the information part of it is is something that people don't quite grasp, which is that mm-hmm. you have players that are spread to the four winds right now. You, you know the number I think was seventeen percent of players were in Europe. That's probably come down a little bit with guys returning. Um, mm-hmm. But you have so many players that aren't at their training facilities, that aren't in the process, that don't understand what a COVID test feels like that don't understand what social distancing looks like when you're when you're dealing with you know internal uh, interaction within the training facility there's all this stuff that certain guys are experiencing that others aren't and there's just like every labor negotiation there are guys that are plugged into the process and guys that are just like just tell me what to do and so like i don't know how you do that i don't when the stakes are this high um and the information levels are this disparate i'm not quite sure how this is going to shake out um, because it really is all over the map insofar as what guys are, are understanding. It's fascinating stuff. All right, let's get to our second guest, uh, a grinding uh, cult classic player named Chris Thorburn. And now joining us on the line is Chris Thorburn, who just retired after a very long NHL career uh, with the Buffalo Sabres, Penguins, Thrashers, Jets, and Blues. And Chris, our first question always for retirees is, why now? Uh, well, yeah, it's weird actually the timing just because uh, it's been so long. Um, and I was pretty committed after last season that that would be my final year. Um, I don't know. I just, uh, I guess I was maybe still holding out hope or whatever it was that, you know, I continued training and I didn't want to be caught off guard if I did get a phone call. But uh, there was a couple of dates that I had in mind um, and just other things were going on within uh, society and stuff like that. So um, this being not as important, I just uh, held off and, uh, yeah, I did it on the 22nd, which is somewhat cheesy because it was the jersey number I wore, but uh, <laughs> it, it has a little bit of meaning behind it. <laughs> I mean, you are the first hockey player in history to do things based on what num- number they wear. Uh, that's why, you know, Sid- <laughs> you, know you, you retire right. on the 22nd, Sidney Crosby takes $8.7 million contracts, same old, same old. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, right, just a little bit of superstition. Exactly. Well, so, you know, like you said, I mean, you, you rode through last year. I mean, you were kind of riding shotgun during that whole blues run. What was it like to be a part of that, even if you didn't, you didn't really see the ice during the, uh, the playoffs? 
Yeah, it was it was cool, man. It, it, it was weird, also, you know, because you know, as an athlete, you're used to playing and uh, being, a, uh, you know, contributing, uh, contributing like on the ice as far as like for our sport. Um, but for me, the the way the team and the dressing room and the players took me in and made me feel a part of it was uh, was exceptional. And, and I've said it so many times, it's it's nothing I'll ever forget because um, they made me truly feel like I, I did have a role on that team, and um, I'm so thankful for that. But uh, like you said, I rode shotgun. I had the best seat in the house every night, um, <laughs> and it was just so cool to watch because throughout my career, I've only four four playoff games to my credit. So this is all new to me. I felt like a rookie, you know, the atmosphere of the buildings and what kind of goes on behind the scenes. It was just uh, the whole experience was uh, was awesome. What's from Blues celebration, whether it was the parade or some of your private parties um, that we didn't get to see? You know, we—I mean, we had a good time, um, but that that parade was uh, was not. Uh, you see parades like on TV, other sports, even even hockey, and uh, you know, it's, it's usually on buses or trucks, and and usually the players stay stagnant within those bus uh, buses and trucks, and they wave. But we were like full throttle, like in the mix with the fans, and you know, drinking beer with them, and um, it was just so cool. Guys were riding like uh, motorbikes and. We just had so much fun with it. The fans, the interaction with the fans was was incredible. Everyone was just on a high, from the players to the fans to to everyone. And we just we just had one big party, man. So that's the one thing that uh, really sticks out as far as uh, the uh, celebrations afterwards. That's awesome. Uh, I wanted to go back to, uh, as Emily mentioned, uh, some of the stops in your career. I mean, you are one of a select group that can say that one year they were thrashers. And the next year there were Jets, and and I wonder with the benefit of some hindsight, what are your thoughts on on that process and and how it all played out, and, and looking back uh, at, at at that moment in NHL history. Yeah, I feel pretty uh, pretty lucky uh, because I got to play for you know I got to play in two different organizations and two great ones, uh, the Atlanta one, um, the the city of Atlanta. We made home, we put down roots, and uh, we just love that area and. Our first son was born there, so there's a lot of uh, you know sentimental factors that went into uh, having to leave, and, and and it was tough. But at the same time, going to an organization and one that's run by uh, Mark Chipman, and right down the right down the line, um, I can't say enough good things about that organization. So as scary as it as it was, once we showed up and we saw the uh, you know the passion not only from the organization but also the fans. Um, it was it was it was such a cool experience to be a part of. And looking back, as hard as you know the move was and packing up, um, I'm ve- I feel very fortunate that I got to uh, play in another organization with some uh, really good people. Now, on the Jets tip, uh, we we wrote a story a few weeks back about some of the most memorable lines in recent memory, including like the cult classic lines for each team, like the lines <laughs> that <laughs> fans never forget, man. And the GTS line. Or, or sorry, the GST line with you and, and Tanner Glass and Slater. I mean, yeah. it, it was a sensation. Like, I, I think people outside of Winnipeg maybe don't appreciate how much that line captured the imagination of fans. Yeah, it was cool, man. And, and it, they ran with it. Um, I did a I did a <laughs> interview yesterday or two days ago. And, well, we still keep it. Me and uh, me, Glasser and Slater still, like, you know, texting one of those group texts. And just a, a little while back, we were talking about the one game where we got we got stuck in our own zone for like two minutes. The team was just cycling it around us, and we couldn't get the puck out. And, and sure enough, they started you know, like GST and for like to give us extra energy to clear the puck. And then when we finally cleared the puck out of our zone, 
the crowd went nuts. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, not like the most proudest story of it, but it just, I mean, it was such a cool, it was a cool experience. But uh, yeah, they jumped on our, our, uh, they just. I don't, they just took a luck into us. We're blue collar players. It was a blue collar town, and they just appreciated what we did out there. And uh, there was many more times where they were chanting GST in good ways. And uh, yeah, it was it was cool to be a part of that line. Because you mentioned your family earlier, and there was a terrific article on the Blues website about your son, um, who I believe is seven years old, and he has autism. And I was just curious, you know, being a professional athlete, being on the road so much, traveling, moving teams, what were the extra challenges of raising a kid with special needs? And now that you're retired and presumably have some more time at home, what would that mean for your family? Yeah, it was uh, – and Bennett, I think when they wrote that article, he was seven, but he's now ten. Um and uh okay. doing great but yeah just especially that last year when uh when i was going to, when i got sent down to san antonio um it, it was a tough situation from the start it was just like oh my gosh what are we going to do and every family has their challenges like don't get me wrong this is just the one that we're dealing with so it's just like how can we make this tough situation possible and without doug armstrong and uh mr tom stillman um i don't even know if i could have finished that last year just because there, there was some rocky times with me uh having to leave we didn't move the whole family we we kept bennett in st louis for his schooling purposes and his structure because mm. that's very important to him so was, uh they allowed me to do something that i've never even heard of, of before as far as making my schedule flexible so pretty much i would go in for games come back to st louis during the week and then fly out for games on the weekend and that wow. was consistent throughout the whole year and they gave me the flexibility and um uh, uh, Kevin McDonald, the GM in uh, San Antonio, and Drew Bannister, the head of the coaching staff there. And, and I got to give credit to my players, my teammates in San Antonio, too, because they never made a ruffle about it. Um, it was just like, do what you need to do. And they gave me that freedom, which, uh, like I said, it's unheard of. And uh, I'm so appreciative of it. And it, uh, it really helped keep that family unit uh, in St. Louis, uh, you know, tight and, and uh, continue to allow my son to strive with me checking in as much as they allowed me to do. I've always been curious about that, actually. Like, how much does a team taking care of its own factor into, say, like free agent decisions? Like, you ha- you haven't had to make too many free agent decisions as compared to some other people, but like, right. is that something that plays in the mind of you guys when you're you, when you're looking around? I mean, you're looking at you know how good the team is, how good the teammates are, where if it's a cool place to live. But is it sort of common knowledge amongst the boys which teams take care of their own and which teams don't? I, I think so. I think there's a there's there's standards out there. I think you, you kind of know the the strength of organizations. Uh, for, like you said, for me, I, I don't really have a choice as, as far as like, well, I'll go here instead of here. I, it's not like I had many options when I was a free agent, but um, you you get a feel. You talk to friends. It's a small it's a small community. So even if you do have an offer from a team, you'll reach out and uh, you'll kind of get that information. Or you know, what do you think about this? How how was that experience for you? And or how is it there while the the player that you're contacting, how, like just getting that kind of information because it's important, especially if you have a family. You kind of want to make sure you're setting yourself up, uh, not only yourself, I guess, but your family for a good situation. And um, a lot of that's through reach out. And like I said, the hockey's a small world, so whether it's good news or bad, it, it, it travels fast. This is one of my favorite questions to ask guys, and I'm not sure if you have a good story for it, but you broke into the league in 2005-06 season with the Sabres. Uh, and you only played two games that year, so maybe this is something that happened later on. But do you have a welcome to the NHL moment, a moment on the ice where you were just totally humbled by someone or the speed of the game? 
Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the game was obviously awesome. Like, it, it was so easy to get up for, you know, the, my first game. I mean, obviously with the adrenaline and all that, people coming into town and watching it. But, but my welcome to the NHL moment was, I still remember, my first game was against San Jose. It was the first game Joe Thornton played for San Jose. He got traded from Boston. Uh, which wow. is super cool because I, yeah, because I was from Sault Ste. Marie, so we played for the Greyhounds, and I, not grew up watching them, but I was still, you know, in, in house league, uh, uh, on a house league team, so I would go go to a bunch of Greyhound games and watch them. But uh, during that during that game, that national anthem, um, Adam Mayer, who played for the Sabers, and a, a guy that I, you know, not molded my game around, but there was a lot of similarities within our game. Um, so I looked up to him throughout the camps that I was there when I was younger. And he walked down the bench, and he's just like, "Welcome to the welcome to the NHL, kid." And it's just like something that's always stuck with me, you know. So, um, yeah, that's I didn't the, expect such a literal answer, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I just like it's always stuck with me. I've told so many people that story, and, and me and Marysy were like, you know, not that I was going to take his job or anything, but like we were similar players, and we're in the same organization, so. Some players are insecure. He wasn't, and he just congratulated me, and uh, I was thankful for that. And uh, like, I, like I said, I haven't forgotten it. That's true. That's awesome. Last one for me, bud. Uh, listen, we're dealing, like you mentioned, it's some, in some strange times. Uh, you don't necessarily have to worry about this yourself anymore, but a lot of your friends and former teammates do. Uh, if you were asked to put a vote down on what to do this summer with regard to playing in these hub cities, how do you think you would have voted? And, and what are some of the, the concerns that you would have had about uh, cloistering in a, in a hub city for two and a half months? Yeah, it's tough for me just from the, the peanut gallery to kind of, you know, <laughs> throw a vote out there. Um, but I, I could give you what I, what thoughts would go into my head. Uh, yeah. Making my okay. decision would be, um, you know, the family thing, right? So it's like, that would be super tough. We, I'd have to prepare my family and sit down and talk and kind of explain what's going on. Um, and a lot of guys are dealing with that, as well as the underlying uh, issues, like if you, you know, if you have some heart problems, asthma or whatever. So if you're a player facing that, I mean, those are some tough hurdles and you know some some roadblocks that you might encounter. So I could see it going either way. I mean, if I was single, I'd be like, let's go. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, you know, different guys have different situations and. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's tough to vote either way. Um, I'd like to be the innocent bystander. I'm just—I talked to the guy, a, a buddy of mine, the other day, and I'm just—I'm just like, dude, I'm so lucky I'm not in—you know—I'm not involved in this because I, it'd be too tough. It'd be too tough, and then yeah. you don't want to get mad at another player for not agreeing with you, or you know. But everyone's got their own opinions. Yeah, I mean that's the thing, right? Like you got guys like you with families, and you got you know twenty three year olds down at the end of the bench that have been playing Call of Duty in their condos for three months. They're like, Let's go play some <laughs> yeah. they just need a bigger TV or a different TV and a hookup. <laughs> yeah, they're good. Awesome. Well, Chris, before we let you go, I'd love to know what's next for you. What would you like to do in your second act post playing? Yeah, for, for me, that that's that year in San Antonio really opened my eyes to something that I'm really passionate about. Um, it almost sounds like a sales pitch here, but um, while I was down there, uh, as good as my teammates were, they were young. So they uh, they used uh, they used me as like a soundboard or asked me advice or you know any tips I, I had. So I really found uh, I, I found a liking in that. Even though I was the old guy, I still found a liking in uh, like helping the kids out. So if there was a a role like a mentor role slash like player development role, I would be definitely. Uh, 
want to consider something like that, that kind of a position. Because, like, my favorite would be helping a prospect out or a kid out and then seeing him a couple years down the road on TV fulfilling his dream. Because that's, you know, that's kind of what I did. So, um, yeah, that, that would be a role that uh, I would really uh, take some pride in. Awesome. Great stuff, Chris. Thank you so much for your time, man. We appreciate it. And thanks for, for all you did on the ice. Uh, there was a lot of people that were big admirers of uh, of your, as you called it, blue-collar hustle. Uh, one of your <laughs> hustle. League, man. Best, best of luck well, in everything you want to do. Uh, guys, thank you so much for having me. appreciate it. Our thanks to Chris Dorber for joining us. And now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Bill Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel of Hot Dogs. It's a segment each week where we talk about things Steve Simmons wrote, apparently. Um, we haven't talked about it yet. We're not going to go into details. We assume that you've seen it. Um, the Toronto Sun reported that Austin Matthews tested positive for COVID-19. And there was a big brouhaha over the way that certain Canadian media outlets that also are related to the Maple Leafs ownership group have uh, dealt with that same subject. Um, there's been stuff written saying that, uh, you know, there might be some inherent uh, biases because of these major media corporations and their relationship with the Leafs. I think that's a topic worth exploring. I don't like the fact that it's a topic that we are exploring because the private medical situation for an NHL player was reported on as idle gossip and i know what you're saying you're saying to yourself okay but aren't there reports about nba players that have tested positive and there there have been this is true in one case it's because a player couldn't travel from his home mm-hmm. country back to the united states to begin the return to play protocols now that's what we call a news peg that's what we call something that elevates a story from being the elevation of idle chatter in Toronto hockey circles. And by the way, this Matthew stuff was known for about three days before it came out to being something that's reportable. Now there's a way to do it. And in fact, Steve Simmons had it right in his hand. He had a line in his story about how a positive test for a player like Austin Matthews could affect his ability to rejoin the Leafs could affect his travel, but there isn't a second spent exploring those implications. There's a second spent saying this positive test could mean X, Y, Z for his career with the Leafs or his participation in training camp or his participation in the tournament that's coming up. And without that, all you have is a gossip item. And don't tell me this. It's for the betterment of society that we know who has it so people can stay out of his way because you certainly weren't saying that when the Colorado Avalanche guys tested positive, and you certainly weren't saying that when the Ottawa Senators guys tested positive. It's almost like you think this is newsworthy because of the guy that it affected. And that's not how this thing should work. Now, all that said, the rules change when we get in the bubble. They do. Mm-hmm. Because if Austin Matthews tests positive in the bubble, and then Austin Matthews is missing for two weeks for the Maple Leafs in a playoff series... Well, that becomes pretty newsworthy, doesn't it? The NHL is probably not going to reveal that it was COVID. Um, they're trying to be a little dodgy about the injury stuff. At least you know it's going to be an upper body have. injury. Upper body injury. But that only not only becomes newsworthy because he's out of the lineup, but it becomes newsworthy because the NHL is doing all of this under the auspices of the players will be 
protected as best to our abilities from infection. So if a player tests positive when they're in the bubble, what are you dealing with now? It becomes newsworthy. This thing that came out in the sun, I'm sorry. I see it as kind of a privacy violation. I don't think that he did the work necessary to elevate it to a sources said story versus something on the record from Matthews, his agent, the Leafs. And he threw Ezekiel Elliott's name out there, which of course was the dumbest thing you could possibly do because Ezekiel Elliott's name wasn't out there until his agent went on the record to confirm. So good job stepping on a journalistic landmine and trying to defend yourself as per usual. That's my take on it. Am I wrong on any of this stuff? I agree with you pretty much on all of it. I think my personal taste would not to be reported right now because I agree it's not newsy. I do think the stakes do change when games are at play, results are at play, guys being out of the lineup in the NHL, putting their financial um, you know, backing behind this event is at play. Um, but for now, when this is a voluntary program and Austin has every right um, to be in Arizona and train privately and do whatever he wants to do, we should let him be. Indeed. Listener mail, Iron Kaniac wants to know, did you think, do you think playing in a small or non-traditional hockey market hurts a player's chances of getting into the Hockey Hall of Fame or should it? Well, it shouldn't. Um, I'm sorry, is this, is this reader from Raleigh? Uh, yeah, I wonder who he's talking about. <laughs> um, or she. Actually, it I don't shouldn't. know who Iron Kaniac is. He or she. Um, I, I think it does in some ways. Here, I'll give you a good example. Um, Patrick Eliash, mm. outstanding crew of the Devils, um, has numbers that are better than some of the other people that are in conversation for the Hockey Hall of Fame. But in the lead up to the vote this week, wasn't really a guy who was front of mind because he was an offensive player for the Devils, and that's a team where Brodeur and Stevens and Niedermeyer and all these guys got the attention. And he was just kind of there. But if he put those numbers up on a different team, Chicago, for example, I think it'd be a different conversation. Not to say that the Devils are a small market team, but they're not the Rangers, right? Let's let's see. I think the argument you're making with that though is about the style of the team and the identity of the team, not necessarily the the market market of the team. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, But as far as the market goes, yeah, I I mean, listen, the old harangue is uh, if this person played in Toronto, they'd be a Hall of Famer. And I, and I do believe in it because the Hall of Fame's in Toronto. And you look at how many guys that were, you know, leaf adjacent that, uh, got, got the call just because they're leaf adjacent. I mean, it's, it's a pretty substantial list. You can so, also make the argument that if this guy played in Toronto, we could par- report about his COVID. <laughs> Shane Doan's a good example. Shane Doan plays in Toronto. Is he in the Hockey Hall of Fame? Mm-hmm. Might be. I mean, he was a coyote and a jet. So I think that's a fair, fair question. This is a question I think you can answer better than I could at this point. Uh, Scotty Hicks wants to know, has there been any talk of what journalism might look like if play resumes? Would some people be in the bubble and be able to have typical interactions? Um, typical interactions. What a great phrase in this day and age. Uh, <laughs> look, I am on the board of the PHWA, which is the Professional Hockey Writers Association. And um, this is something that the league is figuring out right now. Uh, the league is not going to come up with a policy until the very last minute they have to do so because they don't want to backtrack on anything. But the expectation is, yes, journalists still have to do their jobs. We'll still talk to athletes. Um, we don't know 
how many of us will be allowed in the bubble, but the expectation is access, even if you're in the bubble, is not what we think of and going into locker rooms and talking to guys face to face. I'm expecting 90%, if not higher, of all of my interviews to be done via Zoom. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, lastly, John M., would a delay in fans being able to attend games, let's say until the 2021-22 season, affect the Kraken being released, or should it? I mean, you and I have both have not heard a single word about the Seattle return to play, or this return to play, the Seattle debut being affected by any of this in any way. The only thing we heard was obviously the key arena construction was delayed a little bit, but that's not going to necessarily impact them being able to debut, I don't think, is it? No, it's not. It shouldn't. Um, the only thing it affects to this point is the WNBA team, the Seattle Storm, because they might have to find a new home next summer um, should the WNBA season go on as planned, because Lord knows what the life is like in this day and age. Um, but right. everything for them, my understanding, they're not in as much of a rush um, you know, to hire a coach because they are conscious of the play role. Um, the name will come eventually, but uh, TBD on all of that. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's get to some puck headlines. Uh, Dateline draft lottery. What do you want to see this Friday, Emily? What's what's your the biggest amount of chaos that you want to see occur at the draft lottery this Friday? Non-playoff teams, then placeholders to win, and uh, everyone going nuts and saying, Gary Bettman, why didn't you explain it better? And he did the best job he could explain it because it's just a complicated process. What do you think? Mm. I secretly want Detroit to get the first overall pick because I feel... I. I I don't like the fact that the Red Wings suck. I think the world's better when the Red Wings are relevant. And uh, I think getting a franchise player like that would help them course correct. But I'm fine if the other two spots are are, are placeholders. Red Wings first, placeholders. I guess the biggest chaos would be the Senators just totally not getting anything, even though they've got outsized chances at one and two. <laughs> yeah, that's that would be... A lot of chaos. That's that's Doug Wilson calling into the favorite of the lottery company and being like, "Can you make the Sharks not look terrible? Can you do that for me?" Yes. Uh, Dateline Hall of Fame. We dropped our Hall of Fame outlook for all thirty-one teams this week. So let's talk about the Sedines for a moment. In the story, I mentioned the fact that the ultimate, speaking of chaos, thing would be if Henrik gets in on the on on the on the first ballot, uh, and then Daniel doesn't. Um, is there, is there any part of you that believes the Hall of Fame could separate the Sedins? Or do you think there's a chance the Sedins don't get in? I think there's absolutely zero chance they could separate them. They just wouldn't do it. It's just, there's some things about hockey culture that feel sacred and twin brothers playing on the same line and getting inducted into the Hall of Fame at the same time feel sacred. Right. I, I tend to agree. Uh, Dateline Coyotes. New Arizona Coyotes president Xavier Gutierrez says his top focus is finding a long-term arena solution to keep the team in Arizona. We've heard that before. How is it going to be different this time, Emily? Yeah, I had a chance to talk to um, Javier Gutierrez this week. Um, and he's a really interesting guy. Obviously, a bright guy. Doesn't come from a hockey traditional background. Um, he's been in real estate. He's been venture capitalist world. He knows how these things work. I do hope he can figure it out because I do think it's an exciting market. There's a reason the NHL put them there to begin with. It's been drama plagued for years. Let's finally get some stability, but uh, it's not going to be easy. And I, I will say this, he has some really good plans though of, of the how to grow that fan base. And it's specifically targeting youth, women, and Latinas. Indeed. 
Uh, Dateline, Oscar Lindblom. He skated with the Philadelphia Flyers this week? His first time since his cancer diagnosis? I know a lot of people were kind of losing their minds when they saw that, considering what's going on in the world, but but he's back. I mean, not to play this summer, but he's back. It was good to see, but I was a little surprised by it myself. Yeah, the doctors cleared and said he's okay, even though he's still undergoing treatments for that rare form of bone cancer that he has. Um, he didn't outright say it, but it was strongly suggested in the interview that was provided to me that he will not be playing this summer um, with the Flyers. But knock on wood, he will be back next season. And, you know, in the photos that I saw from him on the ice, he's smiling. He's just the purest and sweetest kid. And he literally said, I can't complain because people have it worse than me. So he's very, very hard not to root for. Mm. Indeed. Finally, Dateline uh, Nintendo Switch. Everybody in my house is playing Animal Crossing now, including me. If you're not, I mean, I assume you're playing it if you have a Switch. I've caught many fish. I'm way behind. Like, my, my daughter and my wife are like, you know, flying planes to mystery islands and stuff. I feel humbled. I don't have the time to put into it. And, uh, I feel like I'm gonna be really far behind the entire time. I've- but, but I understand the addiction to this game now. It's, it's a fun, fabulous uh, game for all ages and it's adorable as per most Nintendo things. I just wanted to say that I had no idea anything you're talking about for the last 90 <laughs> seconds. That all sounded like gibberish. We'll get you a flimsy uh, a- a net and catch some butterflies on our island. Emily, get cracking. Mm, that sounds lovely. Okay, okay. thanks for the invite. I'm in. There you go. Well, now that I invited you, I'm sure that gets me to a higher place in the game. Matthew Dumba, thank you. Chris Dorburn, thank you. Thank you to everybody who listened uh, to this uh, this podcast, and uh, we'll join you again soon. Uh, you can read my stuff on ESPN.com, where my uh, when my Thursday column will be Hall of Fame focused, and you could listen to my other podcast, Puck Soup, that has the naughty words in it. I'm Emily Kaplan. I'm not allowed to use naughty words, but follow my stuff on Twitter at Emily M. Kaplan. Bye. 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 Bet ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts. Did you know Geico's now offering an extra 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies? That's 15% on top of what Geico could already save you. So what are you waiting for? Your teenager to help around the house? Okay, Mom, I emptied the dishwasher, vacuumed the basement, and folded the sheets out of the dryer. Wait, what? Oh, and next, I'm going to clean Mitten's litter box. Are we in some kind of prank show or something? That's a camera, isn't it? There's never been a better time to switch to GEICO. Save an extra 15% when you switch by October 7th. Limitations apply. Visit GEICO.com for details.